Waiting can be hard. I remember as a kid, I vividly remember as a kid, counting down the days till Christmas. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And as a young teen, way before the mobile devices, our family took a road trip out to California. All eight of us in one van, no air conditioning. And you can imagine the question that came up every 10 miles from at least one of the six kids. The question, yeah, are, are we there yet? Um, as a college athlete, I vividly remember we had a 12-mile run that we do on Sundays. And at 10 miles, there was this one stretch. It's that between Hodgson, Victoria, Gramsci Road right there. There's this about a mile stretch, and at the end of it, there's a, a hill. And you get on that thing. We used to call it the treadmill because it just felt like it was just never-ending. There, there are times in lives where you'd love to be at the destination instead of the weight in between. But there is something that's worse than the wait. And if you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. One of the few things worse than waiting is the status of stuck. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. I mean, waiting can be hard, but that status of stuck is, that's rough. If you're trying to get to your vacation spot and your flight is delayed, or you're trying to get home, and your flight is delayed again and again and again, that is hard. Or you need something from your computer right now, and it freezes up. Or you need something from a company, and you get put on that automated purgatory loop over and over, but you need it now, and you can't get off the thing. Or you're already running late, and you hit every red light, you hit a train, you, there's construction or a bunch of geese or, or something that brings traffic to a complete stop. Or at a whole different level, you're stuck at a stage of life or you're stuck in a career or you're stuck in a relationship and you don't want to be stuck at that point or you're dealing with a health issue or a loved one is really struggling and not getting better, and you feel stuck. Stuck is not where most people want to stay, right? No one wants to stay in stuck. Well, as a pastor who really loves our church family, here's an important question. Important enough, I'd encourage you to write this one down too. Have you ever felt spiritual stagnation and observed it in others? This new series that begins today is about catching a vision for a more vibrant and life-giving and world-changing faith and equipping us for next steps in that direction. That's what this is about. And where we're going to start our series with is with a true story. It's, it's a, about someone who started in a very different place than they finished. We're going to read it, we're going to unpack it, and then we're going to apply it to our own lives. Now, this one is fun because this is a, an event that we have referenced countless times as a church. We have talked about this one, this example we've given so many times of someone, they once were this and then they became this, but I don't think we've ever as a church family actually gone and verse by verse through this section of scripture. As soon as we open to it, I think almost everyone, if not everyone in this room is going to recognize it. So here we go, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. If you're um, at home and you don't have a Bible at home, you can get a free Bible app at Bible.com. And I just saw that, we got a, you got a point for that one, huh? 
Yeah, the, uh, they've got that whole thing. We talked about this at Easter. Go listen to the message and you'll hear what that was about. All right, <clears throat> here we go. To Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. We'll start there. See if you recognize this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You know where this story goes, most of you, right? You've heard this. This is interesting. We're going to go verse by verse through this. The transformation that is going to happen in this man's life will literally change the world. That's not just me saying that. If you go to lists, you look up multiple lists of the most influential people in history. Saul, well, you'll, you'll probably see him as Paul on the list. He was one of the most impactful people ever. Here's an example of the kind of thing I'm, fine, I'm talking about. Here's an example of some, well, the kind of things historians will say, um, scholars will say about this man. The most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would be missing 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And this is the world-changing part here. Christianity's major expansion to the Gentiles would not have been what it was. What we're looking at today is a real event. It happened in a real timeline. It happened in a real place. Damascus is a real city about 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. In fact, later in the same passage that we're going to read, Saul ends up on a house on what's called Straight Street. You could go there. It is one of the most, the oldest continually open streets on the planet. This is grounded in history. At this point in his life, Saul, a real person, is as anti-Christian as they come. His home base is Jerusalem, but in the passage we just read, Saul asked for papers so that he could pursue followers of the way of Jesus all the way to where? To Damascus, which was about how far away? 135 miles on foot or on donkey or whatever his mode of transportation was. All right, so that's how intense he is, anti-Christian. Here we go, uh, verses 3 through 6. We're going to look at now. Now, as he went on his way and approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Saul, he later tells this story in his own words, and when he does, he claims, I didn't just hear this. I saw him. I, I saw Jesus of Nazareth. Let's continue on. Uh, picking up with verses 7 through 9. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. One of my commentaries called this section of Scripture that we're reading right now, Jesus arrests Saul. 
they call it. Jesus arrests Saul. That's an interesting take. Saul was blinded. He was led into this city, and he had no choice but to wait. And as he waits, can you imagine what's going through his mind at this point? And T. Wright put it like this. It was three days before he could do anything except simultaneously recoil from the horror of just what happened and gasp at its glory. Last week, we used the phrase that we saw in the Bible, disbelief for joy. It was this word, this phrasing that they used when the followers of Jesus saw Jesus resurrected. They're like, like they had to put together this phrase that you normally don't see. Luke doesn't even attempt here to describe what was going on inside of Paul in terms of what, what words, because it would have been so mixed of what he was feeling. Saul couldn't dis- deny what he just experienced. He had just seen this resurrected Jesus. Now juxtapose that with what his purpose was on that journey. What he had done and what he was about to do. Up until that moment, Saul was convinced he was on the right side of history. In fact, didn't Rome prove it? Didn't Rome prove that he was right? Because if Jesus was the Messiah, he wouldn't have been crucified on a cross. Saul had been so certain that he sided with Rome in their crusade against that movement. Pharisees didn't side with Rome. Saul had been so certain that he gave his approval when a mob stoned a follower of Jesus named Stephen to death. Saul had been so certain that he was now persecuting Christians personally. So that's how certain he was, but now he had just seen, he had just heard the same resurrected Jesus that the people who he was persecuting claimed to have seen. What happened on that road to Damascus, it both confirmed and overturned everything that Paul had been taught. It did both of those things at the same time, confirmed and overturned. The words of the law that the prophets had said, they had come true. They had come true. But his understanding of how it was supposed to come true was all completely torn apart and reassembled in a way that he never would have expected. Saul's world was turned upside down and right side up at the same time. Jesus told Saul to wait. He told him to wait. And as Saul was waiting, God was working. Not only in Saul's heart and mind, but in somebody else's too. And that's where we pick up with the story. Let's go to verses 10 through 12. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said. Oh, Ananias. And he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. There's the word behold. If you've got more of a literal translation, that English word behold shows up more than a thousand times in the Bible because it translates a word that's used a thousand times in the Bible. It's a word that means pay attention. Something really unique, 
really unexpected is about to happen. Now, why this is so unexpected that the Lord's calling Ananias? I mean, who, who is probably at the top of Paul's hit list or Saul's hit list at this point? Probably Ananias. And, and this, I think, is what we're about to see in Ananias' behavior here is right away when he hears the Lord, he's like, here I am. But then when God asks him to do this, he's like, I want to make sure I heard this right. <laughs> and, and that's actually good. I want to encourage you to do that. Anytime the risk goes up, your certainty should go up too. I just think that's just wise. And so I think that's what's going on here anyway. So um, verses 13 through 18, let's take a look at those, or at least the first part of 18. But Ananias answered, okay, Lord, hey, uh, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias uh, departed and entered the house and laying hands on him he said brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit now I'm going to confess here I've read the scripture section many many times and I've never paused to really think about the wonder of that moment right there. Ananias. He arrived and he found an enemy. But imagine how he saw this enemy now. This, this person that had come with all the power and authority. What do you think he looked like at that moment? I mean, he's, he's blind. He's broken. He is completely dependent on others for everything. Jesus wasn't just sending Ananias to restore Saul's sight. Ananias' own eyes were going to be opened here too. Saul had intended to lay hands on Ananias. How did Jesus flip that script? Here comes Ananias, brother. Lord Jesus wants to heal you of this. He wants to open your eyes. Saul was welcomed into a family filled with the Holy Spirit of the one who he'd been persecuting. Think there's anything there for us today <laughs> in an age where people are so quick, so quick to cancel, so quick to condemn, so quick to make an enemy, even out of someone who wants their friends, right? Praying for those who persecute us is the way Jesus taught us. Isn't that still one of the many ways where we can really look different than those around us? If we did that one thing, well, imagine how that moment of kindness could have impacted Saul. And he was planning to do one thing, to experience this. It's really interesting. One of my sources, I was reading it, said, hey, take a look at Acts 5. So I turned to Acts 5. And Saul, he had been disciplined by one of the greatest Hebrew intellectuals of his day. It was a teacher named Gamaliel. And look at what his teacher said about the Jesus movement back in Acts 5, 38 through 39. If what they're doing is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you won't be able to overthrow him. 
you might even be opposing God. Is there any chance Paul was at this moment thinking, ah, I wonder if that's what this is. You know, I wonder too in that moment if Saul was remembering, I'm watching Stephen getting stoned to death, this follower of Jesus, and his last words are real similar to the last words of Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, Stephen said. And then Stephen also said, don't hold the sin against them. Can you imagine, Paul, just all of that going through his head, those things he had seen, those things he had heard, things he had been taught, all this getting turned upside down. Well, we don't know exactly what Paul was thinking at that moment, but we do know what he did. Verse, chapter 9, verse 18, the second part of it says this, then he rose and what? Was baptized. He rose and was baptized. As soon as Saul's eyes were open, he began taking steps. He began taking steps forward. He didn't say stuck. He began taking steps forward to identify with Christ and his people. Here are some more steps he took. Verses 19 through 20. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he's the son of God. From that moment forward, Saul of Tarsus, for him to live was Christ, he said. And that was quite a life. Saul experienced the kind of deep, rich relationships that we long for at a soul level. Read his letters. It's filled with all these very specific people that he had relationships with. He experienced miracles unlike anything he experienced as a Pharisee. And God used his passion and his intellect to bring hope and healing instead of pain and death. For Saul, life after that, it was all about Jesus. Take one of his writings, letter to the Ephesians. It's only six chapters long. The words Christ and Jesus appear 60 times. That's 10 times on average per chapter. Everything. This guy who had been so, I'm against anything Jesus, was now, I'm everything Jesus. These are his words from Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, Saul said, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As God had foretold, Saul did suffer much. In fact, ultimately Saul was executed for this newfound faith. But for Saul, it was worth it. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Our world could use more people who are more like Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? We could use more people who are becoming more like Jesus. As Saul was changed, the world around him was changed too. Saul helped Christianity spread like the smell of fresh cookies at Grandma's house. And we see signs of Christians in Christianity's influence all over. Go back and look at our oldest universities, Christian origins, because Christians were at the forefront of education. Think how many hospitals have a saint in front of it. Because Christians were at the forefront of caring for people who were hurting and the sick. Study history. Go to any place on the globe before authentic Jesus followers, not people who are conquering, quote, in Jesus' name, people who are authentic Jesus followers. Look at what it was like before they got there and after they got there. Look at how women were treated. Look at how the marginalized were treated. Look at how power went unchecked. Just look at history. So much of what is good that we just take for granted 
came about by these followers of Jesus who were becoming more like him. If you're taking notes, you might want to note this. Christian discipleship is a series of steps in a specific direction. Isn't that it? I mean, that's Christian discipleship. It's a series of steps in a specific direction. Since Emmanuel launched, we have been tinkering with a whole lot of things. And one of the things we've been tinkering with ever since our launch is trying to identify what are the most essential aspects of Christianity, and then how do we put some milestones to that? And and we call them our continuums. Our continuums. Up until about a month ago, I looked at that word continuum, and I'm like, we got to get a cooler word than continuum. You know, that one just sounds very mathematical or something. Not that math can't be cool. But but we're trying to find a word, right, that, that really would be a great word. Well, then I actually looked up the word continuum. Take a look at this. We're going to stick with continuum. Continuum. A continuous sequence in which adjacent elements are not perceptibly different from each other, but the extremes are quite distinct. Is that not discipleship? Where, where most of it, it's just you're doing these little walks. I'm praying a little each day. I'm reading scripture a little day. I'm trying to become a little more like Jesus. You don't even know, can't even see the difference from day to day. But over time, over time. Now, there are sometimes you take a big step forward. Sometimes you do. But most of it, it's these little small steps. And over time, they add up. So here is the latest version of our continuums. We invite people to discover a deeper, more transformational walk with God. Our mile markers, not interested, to curious, to in Christ, to purposeful witness, to disciple maker. We invite people to connect with others in helpful and meaningful ways, moving from neighbor to visitor to regular to friend to family. We invite people to serve one another as Christ modeled and taught, moving from consumer to volunteer to faithful to leader to multiplier. We invite people to give as God intended, from keeping it all to sharing some, to God first, to tither, to joyful steward. We invite people to reach out to a lost and hurting world in Jesus' name, moving from I'm insulated to I'm introduced to I'm engaged to I'm actually effective to I'm an advocate and pass the torch to the next generation, moving from shining to welcoming to equipping to entrusting to learning. In fact, right now, I just want to say thank you, thank you to all of our teens here and their young people. We couldn't do this service without them. In fact, could we just give a hand to the rest of them? We could not do this. We honestly couldn't. We could not do it without you. Thank you. Well, an adjacent step in your faith, it may not feel perceptively different, but the extremes between not interested, for example, on the Discover Continuum, and Disciple Maker, there's a big difference between those two things. Another thing that I like about a continuum is that it implies that there's more to the left and to the right. And wasn't that true with Saul? Saul wasn't just not interested. He was hostile too. And he didn't just end with disciple maker. He became an apostle. He became a church planter, right? There's always more we can grow. Can you imagine? We talk about more people more like Jesus. Can you imagine as that becomes true? What kind of community you've got? when you're doing that, when we're all doing that. Imagine an entire community of people where everyone is becoming more connected 
in deeper, more meaningful ways. Imagine a community where we're all serving as Jesus modeled and taught. Imagine if we're all becoming joyful stewards. Everything that God's entrusted to us, it's all his. And we act like that. Imagine if we're all becoming advocates for someone who needs help. Imagine a community that is all in for the next generation. Some time ago, I did a deep dive into the power of habits. Of course, there's experts in habits. So I did a deep dive into that. One of the things that habit experts talk about, they said there's these things called keystone habits. That if you have a couple of these key habits, it affects other habits. So take the example like health, physical health. They said there's all kinds of aspects to physical health, right? They identified exercise is a keystone habit. If you're going to start with something, start with exercise because they found those who exercise also start sleeping better. Those who exercise are releasing stress. Those who exercise tend to eat better. They tend to quit smoking. They, they have all kinds of other healthy things that, that if you are doing exercise, it tends to affect all the rest. What we're going to do with this series, we're going to start with just one continuum. Just one continuum. The discipleship continuum. And here's why. You might want to note this. Discover, it's the keystone continuum. It is the keystone. Before we get to next uh, Easter, we're going to try our best to get through all the continuums at different points throughout the, the coming year from now. For this series, we're going to focus in on Discover, because it is the keystone continuum. If you take this one serious, it's going to affect all the rest. All the rest. So it is our invitation, it's our prayer for this series for you to discover a deeper, more meaningful walk with God. Wherever you are on that continuum, don't stay stuck well, before the worship band comes up and leads us in one of my new favorite songs, I've been playing this song a lot at home. I'm going to close with this story. And it's true. Um, I was watching ESPN many years ago, and they were doing a story about a football player, Emmett Smith. How many of you heard of Emmett Smith? All right, Emmett Smith. Um, Emmett is a significant figure in football because he played a position called running back. Running back. And in the NFL, when the running back gets the ball, there are 11 of the best tacklers on the planet trying to stop you, all right? Over the course of his career, Emmett Smith ran forward for more yards than anybody else in NFL history. Anyone know? 18,355 yards. So against the... the Best tacklers in the world. He ran forward 18,355 yards. The journey of 18,355 yards, it's a series of steps. It's a series of steps. Sometimes sideways, sometimes backwards. Barry Sanders, a lot of all over the place. But it's a series of steps. series of steps towards a goal, a specific goal. Well, here's my point of telling the story. When they asked Emmett Smith, what's your key to success? You know what he said? He said, keep the feet moving. Keep the feet moving. 
When you have a huge project, keep the feet moving. I remember last year we, we were put, had this huge pile of sand to level out this section. Of one shovel at a time. I'm telling myself, keep the feet moving. You do one shovel, you're like, this is never going to be. Keep the feet moving. When you got a huge assignment, keep the feet moving. You're going on a journey, keep the feet moving. You got a challenge, keep the feet moving. You got a goal in front of you, that is great advice. Keep the feet moving. It is amazing how small steps add up over time. And when it comes to your faith, let me take that analogy even further. Emmett Smith was an amazing athlete, but if those who were watching football back in the day, it wasn't just him. The Dallas Cowboys back then, that was quite a team. He had a Hall of Fame quarterback, Hall of Fame receiver, and he had an offensive line that would open up holes the size of an airplane hangar door. Emmett Smith had fans cheering him on. He had coaches that helped him sharpen his skills. He had trainers who helped him out when he got banged up. You set out to follow Jesus, you're going to find you're not alone. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit is going to open up doors that no one else can. You have brothers and sisters in Christ cheering you on. And you're going to find over time what Saul later said about his own experience. He said, what's going on here is that right now, it's not I who live. It is Christ who's living through me. So wherever you're at today, not interested, curious, in Christ, purposeful witness, disciple maker, I want to invite you to join us. Let's take some next steps together. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful for these examples that you've given us. You know, it, it, talk about vulnerable, these people that have opened up their lives. We see the good, the bad, the highs, the lows of all these folks. We have this example of Saul who is so far, so anti all things you, that you reached in and you changed his life. And through him, you brought so much hope and so much healing and so much good into our world. Father, we pray that you would do that with us, that right here, right now, wherever we are, that your Holy Spirit would fall and draw us closer to you Draw us forward to take our next step today and throughout this series. And it would be step after step that would get us some momentum, that would get us unstuck and get us moving closer and closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.